this first part of the sermon, uh, the first part of the letter of Hylemon that I preached to you, is it covered verses 1 through 7, and this is where Paul launches into the letter. And uh, really, these verses show us such a godly example of being courteous, being thankful, being prayerful, and being gracious. And really, as we talked about those four subpoints, uh, each of these types of behavior is commanded in Scripture. And again, it's modeled very well in these verses 1 through 7. Now, this part 1 really set up part 2, which is in verses 8 through 14. This was the second part of our series that I spoke on last week. And that, verses 8 through 14, starts with this word, therefore. It's, it's a classic breakpoint. It's a classic kind of sit up and, and take notice and pay attention word. And verses 8 through 14, as we talked about last week, gets into the heart of Paul's appeal on behalf of Onesimus. Now, the appeal that Paul made did not explicitly recite the gospel, but that appeal nevertheless was gospel-saturated. And my desire last week was to show you the transforming effects of the gospel on a person's life and, and to show you Christ. Because my, really, my desire is for you to have a similar mindset, to really to see Christ in everything and to see Christ everywhere. So we talked about last week how in making his appeal for Onesimus, the gospel made Paul bold. Paul laid out this very godly argument and presented evidence before the Lord and Philemon as to why Philemon should forgive Onesimus. Paul was clearly in this letter, you know, after seven verses of being very gracious, he was also seeming to seek some sympathy from Philemon being a prisoner, but it was for a very godly and not a selfish or self-serving reason. It was not a, manipulative, not a manipulative guilt trip, but rather conviction with the word of God and the, even talking about and reminding of the personal relationship that Paul and Philemon had. We then heard last week how uh, Onesimus, how, how the gospel had fundamentally transformed Onesimus and turned him from a useless runaway slave to a useful man, useful for the work of ministry. And in fact, he was very useful to Paul specifically. In fact, it so transformed Onesimus that he's willing to return over a thousand miles to see his former master who he, who he had run away from. Not only was Onesimus risking injury or death or robbery on the journey, the long journey, but he also risked a loss of his freedom, a loss of his even life potentially. He was, again, risking execution because any master could order that upon his arrival. And the reason Onesimus did that is because, again, last week we highlighted the importance of reconciliation what the Bible talks about, reconciliation. Not just reconciliation between God and man, of course, that is our most important spiritual need, but also horizontal reconciliation, especially between believers. It's really such an incredible testimony, and it's a testimony that can only happen through Jesus Christ, through the gospel, through the fact that we are separated from God as sinful men because every single human being that has ever lived, except Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, every other human being had some sin in their life, right? We know that from our personal testimony. We cannot even go one hour without sinning in some way, even in our thoughts, and that reality of sin creates a problem where we are separated from a perfectly holy God who cannot suffer even one drop of sin in his presence. And yet, praise God, the solution for that was Jesus Christ, God's perfect son who he sent and, and who came down to earth from heaven, lived a perfect and sinless life, was 
persecuted by sinful men, put up on a cross where he suffered and, and took upon himself the sins of all those who would ever repent and believe in him. And then he died and was buried and rose again three days later, showing his victory over sin and death. And that people who affirm that truth and believe it in their hearts, that they can have the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And that when God sees us, he sees Christ rather than our sin. And that is the the hope of every earnest Christian believer. And that transformed Onesimus. And as we ended part two last week, we also saw how that truth of the gospel made everyone in this situation meek, strength under control. Paul did not use his apostolic authority to say, Philemon, you must do this. He didn't say that. He was not lording it over Philemon. Onesimus, he, he humbled himself to reconcile with Philemon. He, he, I already talked to you about the sacrifice he made. Philemon also was being called to do this in a meek fashion, that he would be benefited by choosing to do good to Onesimus out of his own free will rather than being compelled by Paul. We also talked about how even the local Colossian body would be exhorted uh, to meekness by such a godly example in Philemon displaying that because we know that this area of Phrygia, old thinking can die hard. This was a harsh honor-shame culture and the expectation would have been that Philemon would have punished Onesimus even severely. So all of that, we see how meekness is benefiting to each of the people involved. So again, to summarize, we had a gracious introduction We have a gospel-impacted appeal, and now we can turn to our last portion of the text. The title of today's sermon is Blessed Are the Merciful. This is a direct quote from Matthew 5, 7. So we know that this title even is, in fact, scriptural truth. It is a truth that blessed are the merciful. Now, the word merciful in Greek, it, it gives this connotation of acting consistently with the revelation of God's covenant. In other words, the definition basically speaks to forgiveness in light of the gospel. That's the definition of mercy here. Now, when we're talking about mercy, it's kind of self-evident that those who receive mercy, those who are the recipients of mercy, the forgiven ones, those people are, of course, blessed by that. Obviously, when someone's forgiven of a debt or forgiven of a wrong, that's a blessing to the one forgiven. And really, we can think about this in the ultimate sense of blessing, which is, again, salvation. That when we are forgiven by God through Jesus Christ, that is the ultimate spiritual blessing, to be forgiven of all of our sin through Christ. But perhaps less obvious sometimes is the fact, and we'll see this in our passage, how a merciful person, one who actually forgives, is also blessed. We're going to see in this text three types of blessings to one who forgives. The blessing of a radical reconciliation, the blessing of a radical repayment, and the blessing of a radical righteousness. That's our passage today, verses 15 through 25. Let's read it together. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention that you, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. 
Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So again, at the beginning of this passage that we're studying today, the words for perhaps serve as a breakpoint. It's another conjunction. It's a connecting word that assigns a reason. And again, when you see this type of word for perhaps, it's another good time to kind of sit up and take notice. It demonstrates another shift of concept here in this letter. It goes from a gracious introduction to a gospel-impacted appeal to the reasons why Philemon should grant the appeal. Those reasons are, again, the blessings that come with being merciful. Radical reconciliation, radical repayment, radical righteousness would be the subpoints again, of this message. So let's talk about this first blessing, the blessing of a radical reconciliation. This blessing emphasizes the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus, between the forgiver and the one forgiven. Verses 15 and 16, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So we look at this, these two verses, and this first part of verse 15, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while. This is all about God's sovereignty on display here. I mean, I mean, it's really remarkable when you think about it. Um, I, I just, it, I, I marvel at the particulars of this letter. But first, let's talk about, again, we always want to keep Scripture central. What are the classic verses when you think of God's sovereignty? Well, I think one that many of us think of is Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We know from this that even trials, and you know, you even heard Harry talk about it in, in the book of James as he's gone through it, that trials even are, are, are things that are going to be for our good, that we should even incredibly consider it all joy, my brethren, when we encounter various trials, as it says in James 1. So, uh, you know, this, this is, again, the notion of God's sovereignty and how God has ordained our life as believers. He has ordained all lives, believers and non-believers both, but in particular, believers can trust in God's sovereignty that everything that happens happens for a reason, and that reason is for our good, even as it says in Romans 8.28. Another classic verse on sovereignty is Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. This was Joseph, who his brothers meant evil to him. They, were gonna, they, they threw him in a pit. They were gonna, thinking of killing him, and, and said they merely sold him into slavery, still a great evil. And yet God worked through that enslavement in Egypt for Joseph to rise up and to, to come to the very pinnacle of leadership under Pharaoh in Egypt. And by doing so, he was able to save the entire nation of Israel during a famine. So God's purpose in every event that we go through in life is so much higher than we could know at the time. And when you think about it, what are the odds that this slave from the backwoods, from the hinterlands of the Roman Empire 
would meet, would make it all the way to Rome, first of all, and then in this gigantic city that he would happen across Paul, and that he would even be saved as a result of Paul's ministry. I mean, that, that's an incredible journey right there. So this, this first portion of verse 15 just highlights again, where it's just a brief kind of window into God's sovereignty and how incredible that is. But as we continue on into this concept and into the verses, verse, the rest of verse 15 and the first half of verse 16, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. So this is where we're really getting into this real root of the blessings of a radical reconciliation. We already talked last time about this transformation of Onesimus. And the reality is, when you see transformations like that, the truth is that the gospel builds up unity in Jesus Christ. Slave and master can become brothers even. This is reinforced in so many different places in the New Testament. It's reinforced even numerous times by Paul. For example, we have 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. It's so clear right there just to see that unity, that all we are, we are all of one spirit baptized into one body. That unity concept is so central. We also have Colossians 3, verse 11, speaking of salvation. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Again, these verses, and there are numerous other ones like it in the New Testament. These verses stress that the gospel, that salvation goes to all without favoritism, without partiality. It crushes down any notion that a person might have, any negative views or bigotry a person might have in terms of ethnicity or, or, or uh, class, for example, even. You, know, you think about master and slave. And really, I want to highlight to you what a radical concept that would be, especially in the ancient Near East, which is all about social class distinctions. And, and it's all about, I mean, this was such an important thing to the honor-shame cultures of that time. These social class distinctions, these, these distinctions between Jew and Greek were elevated to such a height. And yet the gospel crushes all that down in unity. Now, this is, of course, this is not to say that these physical distinctions are necessarily uh, eliminated or changed. After all, obviously, upon salvation, one's ethnicity or skin color does not change. Neither does one's gender change upon salvation or anything like that. The master does not suddenly become the slave. The employee does not suddenly become the employer. So these distinctions may still exist. But in Christ, these distinctions just fade in importance as unity grows and grows and grows. Galatians 3.8, I think, makes this point so incredibly well. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, or some translations dung, so that I may gain Christ. This is such a powerful verse because if you look earlier in Galatians 3, 
Paul gets done talking about how he is such a Hebrew among Hebrews. He talks about his ethnic identity specifically and how that's so, that had been so critically important to Paul. And yet, in comparison, that is something like refuse. That is, that, that is something to be discarded even, to, to count as loss, compared to his identity in Jesus Christ. As, as a comparative value, there's no comparison. Again, ethnicity does not disappear, but its importance from Paul, the Hebrew among Hebrews, who considered it central to his identity, what is now central is our Christian identity. I actually spoke more about this in a Sundays in July message called uh, Discernment in an Age of Identity Politics. I talked about the identity of a believer, and that would be, if you're interested in this topic, uh, I go into it for that entire seminar. So when you think about it, if ethnicity, if class, if master and slave, if these types of distinctions do not really matter, what does matter? Well, let me give you an example. I would say that peace matters. Colossians 3.15 is very clear about that. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. That's a clear example that what matters is peace. What else matters? I would say love matters. 1 John 4 verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If there is hatred in any Christian's heart, a group of people, that is incompatible with our calling as Christians, with our walk. So that type of hatred, that type of distinction needs to be crushed down and repented of as sin. So instead of things such as ethnicity or class or master-slave relationship, we have peace and we have love. And speaking of love, let's keep on reading the rest of verse 16 in Philemon. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Paul here is pointedly reminding Philemon, and again, the Colossian body as a whole, because these letters were to be read publicly, Paul is reminding Philemon and the Colossian body that Paul has a love for Onesimus. And Paul also points out here that Philemon should love Onesimus even more. Because you know what? Now, Onesimus and Philemon are brothers in the Lord, just like Paul and Onesimus, just like Paul and Philemon. And on top of that, now their earthly relationship can be repaired as well. Again, Onesimus has humbly returned to reconcile despite over a thousand miles of danger, despite a possible death sentence even, despite the prospect of future slavery. That's a powerful picture of sacrificial love, is it not? And Philemon now has a loyal, hardworking, profitable, and useful slave even, whereas once before he had a rebellious and useless slave. Remember last week we talked about Paul's play on words and how the heroes would have found that to be very clever, this useful, useless kind of uh, play on words, because Onesimus is a synonym for useful. The bottom line here is that Philemon will be so greatly blessed if he is merciful and forgiving, and he will be best blessed in the form of a radical reconciliation with his brother, Onesimus. Here, Philemon has the benefit of that being offered to him 
He, he can acknowledge God's sovereign plan in saving Onesimus. He, he can be a role model for an increase of unity in Christ when slave and master become brothers and become brothers overtly. He, he can, he can, it's a chance for Philemon to follow Onesimus' example of sacrificial love, even in the challenges that he took to, to work this reconciliation. And through all of this, the earthly relationship is strongly restored. This would indeed strengthen the bond between Philemon and Onesimus and thus act as a blessing to Philemon, the one who is being called to mercy and forgiveness. So that's our first point, the blessing of a radical reconciliation. Our second point is the blessing of a radical repayment. This blessing emphasizes the relationship between Philemon and Paul, between here, the one who is forgiving and the mediator in this forgiveness. Let me pause there for a moment. What do I mean by mediator? Well, a mediator is one that helps to reconcile differences between two disputing parties. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's not physically present, but by writing this letter, Paul is acting as a mediator here. Now, even when we think about that concept today, ideally, of course, we want all Christians to be able to resolve their own disputes. That, that's the best path. It, it you know, doesn't need to involve any more people than it has to involve. But for issues that are turning out to be very difficult or issues that are turning out to be very prolonged, it is totally okay, as we see in this example in Scripture, to use a mediator. Who would be a good mediator? Well, we can look to Paul as an example. Ideally, a good mediator in a Christian dispute would be someone who knows the Scriptures, someone who is respected by both parties. And ideally, again, this can't be happen in every case, but ideally someone who knows both parties, loves both parties, cares for both parties. Those can be good mediators in a situation like this. So with that concept in mind, let's read verses 17 through 20. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So again, let's break this passage down. Verse 17, if then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. That's a weighty charge. That's a weighty sentence, isn't it? I mean, who wouldn't want to view the Apostle Paul as your partner in ministry? So the mediator here is asking Philemon to accept Onesimus as he would Paul, the mediator. It's, it's a clear request, and here it's even a bold and potentially convicting request. Let's read verses 18 and the first portion of verse 19. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. So we see here, again, this is not a selfish request by Paul. It's actually completely selfless. Because Paul himself is willing to pay off Onesimus' entire debt to Philemon. Again, this is a radical repayment offer. And it's a sincere offer. I want you to remember that Paul is indeed being supported in Rome while he's in prison. Because during the ancient times, you starved if you didn't have support, outside support in prison. 
And let's read Acts 28, verses 30 and 31, speaking of Paul. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So even just a few years earlier, we see that Paul had twice exhorted the wealthy Corinthian church to give more by mentioning the need of the church in Jerusalem and pointing to the poor Thessalonians who gave generously. So when we see examples like this in scripture, Paul in his rented quarters in Acts 28, Paul exhorting the churches to support the work of the gospel, we know that Paul had access to resources. And he had access to resources in prison even because, again, without those resources, he would have starved to death. So Paul has access to money, all that to say. Now, also, when we read this passage, by the construction of this passage, it's, it's also quite likely that Onesimus stole from Philemon as he was heading out the door. We know this from, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything. So that's on top of the fact that Onesimus was a slave. There's an implication here that Onesimus stole a substantial sum of money from Philemon as he was heading out the door. Because again, how else could Onesimus have made it over a thousand miles to Rome if he had nothing on at all to do that with? It was probably actually a substantial sum of money we, uh, the many commentators believe on this passage. So we discussed last time how Paul used strong persuasion as an example to the Colossian church hearing this letter. And perhaps indeed that the Colossian church needed to be exhorted to set aside these old habits of harshness towards slaves in their honor-shame culture, as we've talked about. It's also possible that although Philemon was indeed a godly man, it's possible that Onesimus stole so much from him that Paul felt Philemon too needed a good reminder Well, there's even more strong persuasion coming up as we see in the last portion of verses 19 and verse 20. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. (laughs) I mean, again, this is kind of a funny, uh, you know, phrase, if you will, a, a funny verse and a half here. Paul reminds Philemon that he received a priceless gospel gift from Paul. Not to mention to you, well, you kind of just mentioned it, right? (laughs) Paul made a radical repayment offer to Philemon earlier, but now Philemon has the opportunity to even offer his own radical repayment to his own personal messenger of the gospel, Paul, who is acting here as a mediator between Philemon and another brother. I mean, think about that. Who wouldn't want to benefit and refreshed someone that God used in saving you, right? I know many of you may have been saved by faithful parents or faithful family members. Uh, you know, maybe some of you were saved very young, uh, you know, uh, by the help of uh, faithful Sunday school teachers. Uh, but, you know, when you think about that person, if, if you can identify a person in your life that was instrumental in giving you the gospel, what, what a sweet aroma that is. What, what, a, what, a, what a sweet heart feeling that is when you think about that person. I mean, I think about the, the man who gave the gospel to me and was instrumental in my own salvation and just, I, I love that man. You know, he, he was actually a groomsman at my wedding and I just, it, it's just, there, there, is a, there is a connection and a bond there and that's what Paul is highlighting here. Paul is saying, remember, we, we have this 
priceless bond between us. And we can strengthen it even further here. And even act as a blessing to Philemon, the one being called to mercy and forgiveness. Because Philemon would obviously love and benefit from and appreciate a stronger relationship with Paul, right? And I do want to return because it's so clear, you know, the, the, the undercurrent is so clear here in this verse and a half. Remember what we said last week about guilt trips, right? But if the motive is pure and not self-serving, and again, Paul is offering to pay here. If the goal here is biblical reconciliation between two brothers, if, especially if you're acting on behalf of another person, a third-party mediation assistance type of situation, then rather than a guilt trip, perhaps a better word might be trying to bring about conviction in a person. And I want you to remember, because this is so important, Onesimus had already demonstrated radical fruit of repentance. Onesimus did not just send a, a letter from afar. It's like, oh yeah, hey Philemon, uh, you know, can, uh, sorry I, I ran away from you and stole a bunch of money from you, but uh, we're good, right? Because we're, we're both in Christ. That's not what he did. Onesimus was not trying to, to, to pick a speck out of Philemon's eye while there's a giant plank sticking out of Onesimus's eye. Onesimus wasn't saying empty words and maybe or perhaps even shedding crocodile tears even while his actions and his heart do not change at all. Because you know what? That is not repentance. No, we see Onesimus' example, such a clear example of a radical repentance and all of these actions and the risks that he took to get there. And this is another reason why Paul is willing to mediate in this way because he knows that Onesimus is an earnest Christian, that Onesimus is walking rightly, that Onesimus is genuinely repentant, showing great fruit of repentance here. So that again is the blessing of a radical repayment, highlighting the relationship between the forgiver and the mediator. So again, our first point was the blessing of a radical reconciliation. The second point was the blessing of a radical repayment. Our third point is the blessing of a radical righteousness. And here we are illustrating the relationship between the forgiver and God. Let's read verses 21 and 22. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Now, before we begin to unpack this part of the passage, we need to clarify what we mean by righteousness. And I have to say, I think many of us tend to cringe when we hear about righteousness and try to, try to bring that to a human level, right? Because we know that our righteousness is only in Jesus Christ ultimately. And we know deep down inside how truly unrighteous we are when we look into our sinful hearts. We know how loathsome a pharisaical sense of self-righteousness is. So all of that is true, all of that is, is correct, and, and that is a reason why many of us tend to cringe when we think about the notion of righteousness on a human level. And I'm not even saying that those impulses are necessarily wrong. And yet, even so, the scriptures do talk about how we should pursue righteousness. First John 3, 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. 
2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And in particular, I love this because we just talked about it a couple weeks ago. James 1.25, in many ways, gives us the answer. Righteous behavior is not determined by us in our self-righteousness. Righteous behavior must be measured by the perfect law, by the word. Let's read James 1.25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Just a couple weeks ago, Harry talked about this very concept in the book of James. This verse tells us that the one who does these things will be blessed. It's just like our third point today, the blessing of a radical righteousness. Let's look at our passage in Philemon. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. It's so important to note this. This is not obedience to Paul here. Paul is appealing. He's making an appeal. He's not commanding. He said that explicitly in the letter. But the obedience that Paul is talking about here is Paul has confidence in Philemon's obedience to God and his word. That is what Paul is confident in. It brings to mind, when you think about it, the parable of the ungrateful slave in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. You don't have to turn there, but again, this parable is all about how a slave is forgiven 10,000 talents, which is billions and billions and billions of dollars in today's money. And he, he is forgiven an unpayable debt. But then that slave, that ungrateful slave, starts choking a fellow slave who cannot repay even 100 denarii, which is not an insignificant sum of money, by the way. It's five or $6,000 probably by today's money. It's 100 days of labor. So it's not an insignificant sum, but that slave is nevertheless choking his fellow slave for not repaying that vastly smaller amount. This is the importance that the word of God places on forgiveness. Just to drive the point home, James 2.13, we're going to come to this in a, in a number of weeks, I don't doubt, with Harry. James 2.13, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That should be convicting to all of us, right? If you're inclined not to forgive, if you're inclined not to be merciful, look out for that judgment on you, dear saint. These are such weighty warnings, such weighty, just even the the call to forgive in the word of God as delivered here. Paul is confident here that the godly man Philemon, the generous, hospitable Philemon, will obey the word of God and what the word of God talks about in the importance of forgiveness and mercy. I want you to remember, James 1.25 says that the one who acts in accordance with the word will be blessed. Again, Matthew 5, verse 7 says, blessed are the merciful. Paul is so confident in Philemon's righteousness, sanctification, maturity, that he believes Philemon will do even more than what Paul asks, more than merely welcoming Onesimus back as he would his beloved friend Paul. 
Because that's what Paul asked Philemon to do. That he would even do more than that. Wow, I mean, that, that's, that's significant here. Last week I talked about how what, what a beautiful picture it would have been in my mind's eye. I would think about like the notion of a prodigal son. How, how sweet it would have been if, if perhaps Philemon saw Onesimus w- returning with uh, Tychicus from afar and, and that he ran to embrace him without even knowing what he was doing there. How that would be so sweet. Doing more than what Paul asked, perhaps that would even mean emancipation. That, that Onesimus would no longer be a slave, but a brother. I mean, that's really when you think about it, when you think about the horrific sin of American slavery, I mean, especially when so many, so many of these suffering slaves professed Christ and had a genuine love for Christ, how beautiful it would have been if they would have been emancipated right then and there. That would have been a beautiful picture akin to Philemon. Sadly, it happened almost never, but that would have been a beautiful picture. We don't know what Philemon would have done in terms of more than what Paul asked, but we have a hint from history we'll discuss soon. But let's cover this last part of this point, the last verse here. At the same time also, prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. And I want you to note again the strong persuasion Paul uses here. It's a little understated here, but he's saying that he intends to come visit. So when Paul comes to visit, who do you think he'll expect to see once he's there? I mean, imagine, otherwise, imagine how awkward that would be, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that escaped slave. Well, yeah, Paul, I'm not sure how to tell you this. But you know that head on a spike that was over there as you came in? The, no, that, that would never happen, right? I mean, that would be absurd to think about. This is not going to happen. Just think about the incongruity of that, how, how unfitting that would be. But it's also interesting to note, look at how Paul fully expects to be freed from a Roman jail through Philemon's and other faithful saints' prayers. And again, we're going to get to this in James eventually, but I love James 5, 16. The second half, it says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So once again, we see Paul here talking about the blessings of this radical righteousness and again, highlighting this relationship between the one who is forgiven on a, forgiving on a horizontal level and the relationship between that person and his God who has forgiven him. So we see here blessings from being merciful, blessings uh, for being forgiving. We see warnings for refusing to forgive. So let me ask you, so why is it so hard for us to forgive sometimes? Well, I would submit to you that it's often because we forget the gospel. We forget what we have been forgiven. Again, go back to that Matthew 18, 21 through 35, the parable of the, un, of, of, of the ungrateful servant. Read that in your own time. It's so powerful. And so we forget that and we respond in our flesh. We blame shift. Oh, it's, it's, it's not my fault. It's, it's his fault or it's her fault. We allocate levels of fault. Oh, the, that other person's wrong is way worse than mine. We, we, we play the waiting game. Oh, I, I'm not going to see. He, that, that, he, that, he needs to come to me first. We're, we're, we're begrudging, perhaps. Oh, I'm, I'm just not ready to forgive that. Maybe someday, you know, a year, three years, five years from now, maybe I'll be ready to forgive. Maybe we're even passive aggressive about it. Oh, yeah, no, there's nothing wrong. Excuse me, I have to leave now. 
You know, it's, I think we've all had some level of that. Praise God that Christ did not respond that way toward us. Amen? Our desire, our goal should be to forgive quickly, extravagantly, 70 times, seven times. Again, the prodigal son, uh, I've, I've talked about that a couple times. The father ran to his son without even knowing what he wanted. Think about the Proverbs about how treating even our enemies with kindness is like heaping hot coals on their head and convicting them of their own sin and behavior toward you. Think about the, the Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who curse you. Turn the other cheek. Someone who takes your coat, give them your shirt also. Sometimes if we are to believe all things in love, it means that we need to set aside our skepticism at times. Sometimes a willingness to be wronged and not seek justice, to let the Lord avenge. Sometimes that means actually being taken advantage of from time to time. Sometimes understanding that only the Lord knows someone else's heart means that we might need to set aside our own suspicions about someone else's heart. Sometimes pointing to the wise course of action or the course of good stewardship, we have to make sure and be careful that we're not just using that as an excuse to cling to a grudge or bitterness. At the end of the day, it's not about the beauty of the one who is forgiven. It's about the beauty of the one who is forgiving, just like our beautiful Jesus Christ. I love these words from Pastor John. We are never more like God than when we forgive. Well, there's a postscript here talking about Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. And uh, for the interest of time, I'm not going to go into each of those characters, although if you have questions about them, I'm happy to talk with you afterwards. And even again, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. How gracious Paul is. Again, so typical of Paul that just as Paul began this letter with such gracious words, he concludes it with such gracious words. But there's also an unwritten postscript drawn from ancient church letters and records. These are not inspired or inerrant records, but it's reasonably solid evidence. We actually have records from that time period that state from around the period of perhaps 107 to 117 AD, which is about 50 years after Paul wrote Philemon, the head of Ephesus was a man named Onesimus. Now, while it's true that Onesimus was not necessarily an uncommon name for slaves, I do wonder how many of them may have lived close by in Colossae, relatively. I wonder how many of them were converted through the Apostle Paul's ministry and co-labored with him in Rome and was discipled by him. Because in my mind, a man like that, a man who would travel over a thousand miles to seek reconciliation, that would be a godly man. And so in my mind's eye, again, I, I don't know what happened, but how beautiful it would have been if Philemon had granted a young Onesimus his freedom. And that Onesimus used that freedom for God's glory and the kingdom. And that former slave even perhaps rose to lead the entire church in Ephesus when he is old. What an incredible journey for Onesimus that would have been. Well, personally, I've been so blessed. This, this study has been an incredible journey for me personally in terms of studying it and reading it. I've been greatly blessed by it. And my prayer is that the book of Philemon can also bless you on a highly practical level even as you contemplate the notion of reconciliation in your own lives. And I pray that you will apply these themes from Philemon in your own Christian walk.
Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful to you for your perfect word. We just pray that we would read it, study it, commit it to memory, write it on our hearts, and most of all, that we would be doers and not just hearers of the word of God. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.